deep in the heart of every person, I believe, is a longing for a place called home, a place of belonging, acceptance, a safe place, a comforting place, a healing place. Where is that? Maybe it's the home in which you grew up, filled with warm acceptance and wonderful memories. If you could just go back home again and be with mom and dad like it was in the old days, or maybe not. Maybe that home carries for you only the worst of memories of fighting, abuse, neglect. You do not want to go back to that home again, but you still long for that home that you didn't have. Both of those images, the good and the bad, are reflected in the first chapters of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Last Sunday, Pastor Jeff introduced our Advent series, Home for Christmas, and introduced our original home, the home prepared for our parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. It's a wonderful place. Oh, it was more than a wonderful place. A place of shalom, a place of peace with God, of peace with each other, at peace with nature and all the animals. It had a perfect climate. I don't think it was in Indiana. It was so perfect, they didn't even need to wear clothes. No lack of any need or comfort, purposeful and enjoyable work, and best of all, as image bearers of their creator, they were made to love and be loved, to have unity with each other. No marital conflict. Can you imagine that? No marital conflict in that place, but perfect harmony. So that Adam and his relationships with Eve, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, a helper fit for him, living in a one flesh relationship in in all ways, united physically, emotionally, spiritually, no stresses, no conflict, and no shame or tension in one's relationship with God. No shame or guilt. That's the good news with which the Bible starts. That's the home we all long for. But my news, my my opportunity today, my assignment today is to share with you the bad news. How did I get that assignment, Jeff? I get the bad news. Actually, I'm very glad for it. Our title is Lost. Lost. Genesis 3 describes the loss of that home, the giving up of all that is good and harmonious and peaceful and fulfilling, driven away from that place called home. This chapter explains how Satan in the form of a serpent deceived them and they believed his lies that God was lying to them, is what what he said to them, and holding them back from achieving their own divinity. We hear those same lies today. They partook of what was forbidden, the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and and they partook of it, and, and everything, I mean everything, changed for the worst. And how they mourned, wishing they could go back home again, but they couldn't. Do you wish you could go back home again? It was a popular saying 
you can't go back home again. Well, I try it occasionally. Almost every time I'm in Kansas, uh, I drive down the country road by the house where I grew up, and this is it. That's where I grew up. Doesn't it look inviting? You want to go home again? I think that proves that you can go home again. In fact, three years ago, I got permission from the current owner. It's been unoccupied for probably 15 years or longer now. From the current owner to actually go inside, to pull some plywood off of one of the windows and go inside and look around. It was quite a journey to be in those rooms where I grew up. Last spring, Linda and her brother went back home to Arkansas, where they lived for a very short time when Linda was a baby. How would you like to live in that house? If you look closely, the front steps are in very good condition and a beautiful lady on them. But I don't think she wants to go home again, not to live there. But what we find in Genesis, as bad as these pictures are, what we find in Genesis 3 is far worse than this. Linda and I have lived in many places we've called home, Wichita, Kansas, Mundelein in Waukegan, Illinois, Sumner in Columbus, Nebraska, uh, Wichita, uh, Kansas, three different houses there, plus another one for a month while we were in transition. And uh, I suppose uh, one of the homes we lived in for 16 years there, our kids would call that their childhood home. But in 2002, we built our dream home in a new housing era area. Had a wonderful time with the project. Um, expected to live there until we couldn't care for ourselves anymore. 30 or 40 years if God would, would give us that many years. And less than two years later, we moved to Indianapolis. And no, I don't feel a bond with that house. I've driven by it a couple times. I don't feel a, that just not home. It was great for the 22 months we lived there. It was awesome for our Youngest daughter's high school senior year when friends of hers were in and out constantly. But it's not home. Christmas may stir those longings for home, and, and, and it does in me, but not in terms of going to a particular house, but rather the kids coming home for Christmas to our home where we live now. We expect them all to be there this year, and it's home because the family's there. But as special as we expect that to be, none of these places or events or holidays can fulfill that deep longing for home, because home in this world post-Eden is a place of suffering and difficulty. All that was good in Genesis 2 is taken from Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And thus taken from all of us who are their descendants. So please turn to Genesis 3. It's easy to find. It's the first book of the Bible. It's page 3 in the Bible that's provided under the chair. We read here of the effects of the fall of humanity and the sin and separation from God. But in God's grace... Interwoven with the disaster that is unfolding here, we see the seeds of hope to come home again to a place even better than Eden. 
Would you please stand with me in uh, recognition of God's word as I read Genesis 3, 14 through the end of the chapter. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, some of you are scratching your heads already and say, what kind of a Christmas text is this? Where's the shepherds? Where's the wise men? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm calling this the first Christmas passage in the Bible showing us why we needed Jesus to come and rescue us. And that's what Christmas is all about. Now, I have the bad news of an accurate diagnosis of our problem, but I actually get the privilege of taking us to the good news of God's plan for our healing in the latter half of the message. We start with the bad news, and the question is, how lost are we? We're lost, but how lost are we? And Genesis 3 spells it out in painful clarity. I'm not going to cover the details of Satan and the temptation and the fall into sin. Uh, that's the background for it. But just the consequences of humanity's awful decision. And first and worst is a broken relationship with God. Genesis 2 describes Adam in communion with God, later joined by Eve, living with no experience of guilt or shame, nothing to hide, at peace with their creator image bearers of the one who created them. It's a beautiful picture. You couldn't find a more radical transition as you go to chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. They disobey God. They suddenly have a knowledge of good and evil, but does that lift them up? No. Not what Satan promised. It drives them away from God, not lift them up to God. Verse 7, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They knew they were exposed, seen for what they really are. And they sewed fig leaves together. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. 
God calls out, Adam, where are you? It's not because God didn't know, but it's to, to, to reach out to him. Adam, where are you? Adam responds, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God asks rhetorically, who told you that you were naked? Well, something radically has shifted in his whole, his whole mindset, his whole process of thinking in his heart. Everything has changed. Peace and joy is replaced by fear and shame. They're now afraid of God. They're now afraid of their creator and all that is good in their experience. The relationship with God is broken, and they know, they intuitively know, it seems, that they are under divine judgment at that moment. And when relationship with God is broken, it's inevitable that relationships, all other relationships, will be broken as well with each other. Adam starts the blame game, the effort to excuse sin and transfer guilt to another, and we're very good at that. We're very good at transference. We all play games that way, not even realizing it sometimes, perhaps. And that relational brokenness continues as part of God's judgment. Verse 16, your desire, literally, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Uh, The ESV is a, a bit of an odd translation there, but I think it does get to the point. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but I think it's saying more than that even. Her desire for her husband is her desire to control him, to dominate him, to no longer be one flesh partners in an equal relationship, but to be dominant over him. And he says, I'm not going to take that. And so he rules over her. No longer flesh of my flesh anymore. One flesh but he fights back, and he uses brute strength to dominate. Intimidation. Oh, what tragic, tragic examples of that do we see? Well, it's not like it's just started, but in God's grace, it is being revealed. Opportunities for repentance and change. Every marriage suffers from this part of the curse. Then there's, there's pain. Oh, look at the pain for everyone, all kinds of pain. Uh, pain for the woman in childbearing, and if it was just the temporary pain of childbearing, and I obviously can't understand that one, but if that's all it was, it wouldn't be so bad. Jesus said when a woman is, having, uh, is giving birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. But that's just the beginning of the suffering of moms and dads. Eve experienced her firstborn son murder her secondborn and most of us have not experienced that awful, awful tragedy in our lives. But, oh, we, we've struggled with our kids and how to guide them and help them to grow up and make wise decisions and grieve when they make bad decisions. Verses 17 to 19, pain for the man in his work, his responsibility and purpose for work 
as a great joy is disrupted and becomes a painful struggle. Blood, sweat, and tears just to stay alive. Man and his wife enter into one another's pain because they're now estranged. Not in that unity they once had. It makes it even worse. And where does it end? Eventual death. Verse 19, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And just in case you're hanging on to that hope, if we could just, if we could just get to that tree of life, there's another tree, if we could just get to the tree of life and take a bite out of that fruit, then maybe we could be restored to what we once were. But no, God's judgment is that that is not allowed lest he reach out his hand and also take the tree of life and eat and live forever. It seems that all hope is gone. And so simultaneously, they're forced out of Eden. Banishment from home is their fate. Verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so this is the painful reality that we all find ourselves in, that no matter how hard we try to make a home for ourselves, we've been cast out of that perfect home that God designed for us, and we face alienation from God with each other, a life filled with pain and suffering and ultimately death. Merry Christmas, everyone. Unless God intervenes, Unless God has intervened, this is a bunch of nonsense. Lights, food, music, gifts, parties, maybe a brief respite, but we're still homeless and hopeless unless God has intervened in some amazing way. Well, that's the bad news, but now I have some really good news. Ready for some good news? And it's right here in this chapter. It's easy to miss, but it's here. The roots of the good news are intermingled with the bad news right here in Genesis 3, introducing us to the theme of the whole Bible. From Genesis 3 all the way to the end, God's rescue of lost people. That's the theme of the Bible. Giving us the hope that we can go home to our real home, an even better home. And I want to point out five promises in Genesis 3 that point to Christmas and its glorious results. Number one, our enemy is, will be, both is and will be defeated. God speaks judgment on Satan, the serpent, in verses 14 and 15. Because you've done this, cursed are you. Uh, above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, on your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But the heart of it is in verse 15. Genesis 3.15, it's often been called the proto-evangelium, the gospel first seen, like a prototype of something. I will put enmity, he's speaking to the serpent now, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. 
he, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A descendant of Eve, he will bruise or crush the serpent's head. But descendants of the serpent, and I take this in a a somewhat figurative way here, that is the followers of the serpent, it's not like Satan has children that do this, but those who become the children of the devil by the way they live, by the way they follow him, those are his offspring, they will bruise his, the descendant of Eve, his heel. Now, details are lacking in Genesis 3. This is not the whole gospel. We're glad we have more Bible than Genesis 3, for sure. It's filled in by numerous Old Testament examples and prophecies, such as the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22 and the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and much, much more. And for an overview of this, well, read the Bible for an overview of this, but a, a quick way and a beautiful way to get an overview of this is to attend the upcoming performance of Handel's Messiah put on by the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the Indianapolis Symphonic Choir. It's going to be Thursday and Friday, the 21st and 22nd, at the Palladium in Carmel. And uh, uh, they're having two of them this year, so my guess is, happily, sadly, in a sense, I think there's room for you. And if you've never been, it's time to go. If you've been there, it's time to go again. Uh, I don't know how many times I've been. Not sure I'm going to make it this year with my schedule, but uh, a great way to get an overview of this rescue plan. Essentially, what verse 15 suggests this is that this is an indication of the servants of the serpent killing the offspring of Eve, which proves to be the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's on the heel because it's not permanent. Again, figuratively on the heel because it's not permanent because Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the heart of the gospel. But the offspring of Eve, Jesus will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. That is defeat Satan. And so this looks ahead to both the first and the second coming of Jesus. Now, I was sent this fascinating the image the other day that is an image of Eve on the left and Mary on the right. Eve has the the, the serpent wrapped around her leg. She's in the clutches of Satan. But Mary, obviously pregnant with Jesus, is crushing the serpent's head under her foot. Now here is an opportunity for a vital theological correction. Mary does not crush Satan. She is not the Savior or as some teach, the co-redemptrix of the world. She is not the Savior. She needed a Savior as much as you do and as much as I do. And she recognized that. In her praise song, she said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Jesus does the serpent crushing all by himself. He makes the sacrifice to be the Savior all on his own. And this great hope is first revealed 
in a veiled way to be sure, but in Genesis 3.15. What are the other promises? Well, another one that you might miss is that life goes on. After this tragedy in in chapter 3, life goes on. Uh, Verse 15, Eve will have offspring. Don't don't miss the obvious. She, She will have offspring. Verse 16, the curse of pain in childbirth means that babies will be born. The human race is not eradicated. This is God's grace. She's the mother of all living, verse 20. So life goes on, and then grace covers shame. Remember the fig leaves? Ever tried to make yourself uh, an outfit out of fig leaves? Probably not a very good idea. It doesn't work very well. You're going to be embarrassed. Adam and Eve's pitiful attempt to hide from God, verse 21, provides a better covering. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now what has to happen in order to make a garment of skin to wear? What has to happen? An animal has to die. Some people get pretty upset about that. I don't think we should kill animals for any purpose. Well, the Bible says they are gifts to us for these purposes. But here's the first sacrifice of an animal for the good of man and later a repeated symbolic sacrifice for sin in the daily sacrifices, in the Passover sacrifices, on the Day of Atonement and the other festivals and feasts. But these sacrifices were never enough And you can read the book of Hebrews for that. But as Romans 3.25 says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he, God, had passed over former sins, which is a way of saying those sacrifices weren't enough to really deal with those sins. Jesus, in his grace, forgave and declared Abraham righteous. And the same with Moses and the same with David. And the Old Testament, we call them Old Testament saints. But they hadn't had a Savior die for them yet. Only the image or illustration of that Savior. And so they were saved based on trust in faith in God, trust in God, looking forward to the fact that God would provide. And now, of course, because God has provided in Christ, we look back to the finished work of Christ in His sacrifice for our sins. But this begins to picture the good news of salvation and then eternal life after death. Now, This one's interesting. Two trees are mentioned in Genesis 2.9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of the latter, verse 17 says, you shall not eat of it, for on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So that's the prohibition. You don't partake of this particular tree, the knowledge of good and evil. With a slight revision, but a significant revision that is a distortion, Eve quotes that to Satan in Genesis 3, who replies, you will not surely die, for God knows your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. God's rules are designed not to help you, but to hurt you, to keep you from competing with Him for Godness. No, that's the great lie. So she ate. And he, Adam ate, and they didn't drop dead. So, oh, well, right, you're not going to die. And they didn't die. Oh, but what a short-sighted view. They died a far worse death that day 
what the New Testament calls dead in your trespasses and sins, dead to God, their hope of all that is good, and they lost everything, driven away from their original home and entering into this ugly new reality. But what about the first tree, the tree of life? Just what if they could, what if they could somehow get past that, that sword-bearing angel, get back in the garden, and get a, access to the tree of life? That would solve it all, wouldn't it? And why did God ban them from the tree of life? Maybe it would reverse the awful effects of the fall into sin if they could just get to that tree. Well, I can't preach a sermon without talking about my other life these days. Uh, Some of you know I'm in my second journey through high school. I graduated 50 years ago this following spring. I'm going to high school again, helping my grandson. And um, the class that I'm actually attending on a regular basis is kind of the... uh, backup uh, teacher, uh, it hasn't happened yet, that's good for the students, but uh, is, is British literature, and uh, uh, we recently read Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, uh, Four Journeys to a Variety of Very Strange Places, but one of the several places that Lemuel Gulliver visits in, in his third of the fourth journeys, it's the most complex in many ways of all the journeys, is what a, a place called uh, Lugnag and where he thinks he's made a wonderful discovery. Because in Lugnag, there is a class of people that are randomly born. It's not a particular family. It could happen to any family. A baby that's randomly born with a red dot over their left eyebrow. And everybody knows what that means. That means that child will never die. That child will never die. And there's a whole group of these people. They're called the Stroldbrugs. The Stroldbrugs. Now, Gulliver was so enthused about this, this, this glorious finding and the, the potential for, for, for living forever and continually growing in knowledge and gaining wealth and, and learning how to live life better. I mean, this would be glorious. And so he's just salivating over this potential for the human race. But he's surprised that the... Lugnagians don't share his enthusiasm. In fact, they consider this red dot of immortality to be the worst of curses on any family, and specifically on the person who has the red dot. And indeed it was, for Gulliver learned that those who live forever are relatively normal until they reach the age of 30, and then they fall into a serious depression. And they don't get out of it. At about 80 in the society, they are declared officially dead, but they're not dead. And there is provision for them, so they still have food, you know, some kind of of government care for them. But while they don't die, which at first sounds good, in fact, their bodies fail and their minds fail and they eventually lose their sight and other senses and they're imprisoned in their failing bodies out of which there is no escape. They're locked into them for eternity. 
What could be worse than that? That's hell. That's what that is. That's a description of hell living forever in misery. Adam and, e- Adam and Eve were at risk for becoming Strolldbrugs in Lugne. And it was God's protection against that very horror that's described in Genesis 3, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, assumed in that state of sinfulness and pain and struggle and conflict and alienation. What worse fate that could you have? I think it's my favorite quotation outside of the Bible from Augustine's Confessions, what, Lord, do I wish to say except that I do not know whence I came to be in this mortal life, or as I may, I, I got ahead of myself, my favorite quote's coming later, but here's a quote from Augustine. <laughs> what, Lord, do I wish to say except that I do not know whence I came to be in this mortal life, or as I may call it, this living death. That's not my favorite quote. That's, that's a recognition of how awful it is. Adam and Eve and all of us would be sentenced to eternal living death. And so here is another act of God's grace in Genesis 3. Maybe not fully intuitive, but so real. They're driven out of the garden, away from the tree, guards place to prevent any possible means of re-entry to take from the tree of life and live forever in that sinful condition. You know, I first learned John 3.16, as any of you my age or older probably did from the King James Version, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, that's true. It is everlasting. But the new translations make a significant improvement as they translate that word eternal life. It's not just going on forever and ever. You want to go on forever and ever in the state you're in right now? I don't think so. You want a new state. You want a new condition. A, not just a quantity of time, but a transformation of quality. And that's what God promises in Jesus. ESD, the ESV study Bible note on verse 22 says, God begins a sentence in verse 22 and breaks it off without finishing it. For the man to live forever in his sinful condition is an unbearable thought, and God must waste no time in preventing it. But God does. He prevents them from gaining immortality in that sinfulness, a living death. He drives them out, puts in motion the plan to rescue them from sin and death, to live forever in life, not in death to bring us to an eternal home made possible by the coming, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And so through him, no matter where we are, we can experience being home for Christmas. Is there a home somewhere for you? Yes. And it's not in Kansas or in Arkansas or wherever you're from. It's not the dream home that you planned and built. The home we seek, the only home that will satisfy, 
is in Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5.8, at home with the Lord. And so I do take you to my favorite quote from Augustine. As he says, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King, there is this dialogue. Samwise Gamgee, we used to have a dog named Samwise. Uh, Samwise says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What happened to the world? And Gandalf responds, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he'd not heard that laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. The shadow, the shadow of sin and suffering has departed. Timothy Keller borrowed the words of Tolkien's Samwise in this tweet sometime back. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. The way home again is not to go back home, trying to revisit the memories of the past, Oh, we can do that and enjoy certainly a, a significant amount of that, but that's not, that's not the answer. It's not going back again, but going forward to home in the presence of God and to celebrate that our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's home. Let's pray. Oh God, many of us have much to be thankful for in terms of the earthly homes and families in which we were raised, others of us have very painful memories, some of us certainly a combination of the two, perhaps all of us in some sense. But I pray that you would give us a longing to live in this world with the hope of our eternal home, provided by Jesus. Ultimately, he's the one who will bring us to that home in his presence forevermore. May we long for it to come home to Jesus.